And the funny thing is when I'm teaching this to people in a seminar is I'll take the sales manager or one of the people and I'll say, look, I'm going to sell you this consulting and I want you not to buy it. When I get done, do not buy this from me. Give me some kind of an objection. And then what I do is I elicit the strategy and I feed it back to them in the exact order and I say, okay, do you want to buy this right now? And they always go, okay. And the entire class like freezes at that moment and starts cracking up because I say, wait a minute, I told you not to buy from me. For more information, go to thebuyingcode.com. That's www.thebuyingcode.com. So, Ken, how is this different than traditional sales training or techniques? The real big difference here is this is all about selling based on a person's own emotion, and it's all about emotional selling it's really kind of based on a lot of the research that's just been coming out in the last five years or ten years where now we're doing PT and MRI scans of the brain and we can actually see what part of the brain's involved as people think or as people make decisions. So in the past, in traditional sales techniques, you've got certain things like, you know, here's 13 different closes or here's a script and here's the questions you're going to ask people. And here's how we convince them that your product's better because here's the different reasons, say, this car's better than another car, or here's the reason you should buy this jewelry, or here's why this financial investment's better than, say, a different one. Whereas with what I'm talking about, we're actually eliciting someone's actual unconscious decision-making strategy. People unconsciously have a very, very specific way that they make decisions. And what's really fascinating is people don't even know themselves how they do it consciously. If I were to walk up to you, for example, and say, gee, how do you make the decision when you go to buy a car? You actually don't know consciously. But there's actually an unconscious strategy that you're using to do that. And so what we do with this is we actually elicit that unconscious step-by-step -step process that a person's using. And then what we do is just use that in the sales process. Is this something new? Because we've all heard that people make decisions based on emotion and then they back the logic up by non-emotional fact and logic. Is it really that new or has it been around for that long? Exactly. That's the point. People make emotional decisions and then they justify it with logic. Now, if I were to ask you, you know that. You've probably seen lots of different sales training programs. And so we know people make emotional decisions. Great. Now, how are you going to sell knowing that? So Tom Hopkins and sales scripting, is there still a place for these techniques? No. Uh-uh. Really? Not at all. So you think it's making this Tom Hopkins and the alternate choice of the closing questions and the sales scripting over the phone, you think that what you have is making some of these things obsolete? Oh, it's not only obsolete, but once you start using these kind of techniques, not only this technique where we're talking about really tapping into the person's emotions and their unconscious decision-making, the person's actually telling you what they want and how they want it. If you go back to trying to use the sales closes and stuff, you find that it's just so uncomfortable. And you realize that, geez, I don't even know how to phrase it. It's, it's literally like rude to people. What do we call the technology that you have? We're eliciting their unconscious buying strategy. Can you tell me about the history, how you developed and learned this? Sure. The early part of this was way back when I first got out of college. The very first job I had was as a prison guard. And as a prison guard, I had some experiences. One of the experiences I had was literally like three months after I got the job, a guy that got hired the same day I did as a prison guard got fired. 
And when I heard he got fired, you know, I asked about it and found out he had gotten fired because he had brought in a whole bunch of marijuana to a prisoner. And my first thought was, good Lord, why would somebody do that? You know, you know it's illegal. You know you're going to go to prison if you do it. Why would you literally, with just in three months of getting hired, bring in marijuana and give it to an inmate? And at that moment, I started, you know, really questioning that and found out inmates were really phenomenally good at manipulation. And they really have some phenomenally good strategies of manipulating people and conning people and tapping into people's unconscious thought processes. And so really, really got into that and actually even started teaching it to the prison system. When you got into it, how did you get into it? You were interested in this. Did you start studying it? In what ways did you take action to get into it? I started studying what were the inmates actually doing? What did they say? How did they say it? And what I discovered is there was this whole setup process that they were using and found out that they were actually looking for certain kinds of ways of thinking. And then they were using how people were thinking against them. Can you think of an example from way back then? One of the things that inmates did was they would give you something, you know, randomly. Lots of inmates have lots of time, so they draw pictures. And some of them are actually phenomenally good artists. So they would come up to you and they would give you a picture. Or let's say I'm going about my job throughout the day and I'm doing stuff, and all of a sudden this inmate comes up and he does me a favor. Maybe he goes and gets something that he knows I'm going to get. Or maybe he mops the floor and says, geez, you know, I just mopped the floor for you. Or I did this without you even asking. So they would literally, like, do you this favor. And then a day or two later, they'd come back and they'd ask you for a little teeny tiny favor. They'd say, hey, could you do this for me? Remember, I did that for you. And whatever they were asking you would be always really, really minor. For example, one of the things that I would do is inmates would ask for like a little slip of paper so they could write a request on it. And normally, I would just hand those out at one time during the day. So one of the things an inmate might do is come up to me in the middle of the day and ask me for one of those slips of paper. But after he did a favor for you. Exactly. So the right of reciprocation. Natural law. Exactly. Okay. And then they keep building on that. So now, once you've done something small, now they escalate it a little bit and get you to do another little favor, but even more. And then again, it's another favor, but it's even a bigger favor. And now, at that point, they can turn it around on you because they can say, look, you're not supposed to have done all this. If you don't do me this other favor, I'm going to turn you in. Really? Did they ever do that to you? Not to me, but again, that's what they did to a lot of jail guards, and that's why this guy brought the marijuana in. It was almost like fishing, you know, they catch you and kind of reel you along until they get you to a certain point, and then psychologically you're trapped. Very interesting. Kind of damned if I do and damned if I don't. Any other examples you can think of from the inmate experience? Any jail guards get in trouble? Oh, yeah. It happens literally every year or every few months. You'd have somebody get in trouble. We see it all the time. For example, I have a brother who's really well-known here in the United States because he's an expert in medical systems for jails and he sets up the medical plan for jail. And so inmates are always trying to con the system there and get more medication or get things that they shouldn't actually be entitled to. So, for example, one of the things we often see there is, again, you've probably heard there's a psychological principle called liking or similarity. Inmates use that phenomenally well. For example, they'll be standing there talking to you or they'd be sitting there talking to the doctor or nurse and all of a sudden they just make a statement like, wow, you're a lot like me or we're very similar or we're a lot alike. And then they give you an example of how we're alike. See, we're alike because we both like this or we're both alike because we both think this similar way. And so now all of a sudden the doctor or the prison guard is starting to think, oh, this guy's not a bad guy. He's okay. And then again, it's do me this little tiny thing 
that's not out of the realm of possibility. You could easily do it, but it's just slightly beyond what you would normally do. And then they would, again, reel people in by doing that. Okay, so how did you delve into the study of these unconscious behaviors? Just by observation? Basically just by observation. And, again, what I found is there were certain inmates that were just phenomenally good at this. And what I did at that point is you spend all day long there. You're with them for eight hours, so you sit there and you ask them, how are you doing this? What are you doing? Why are you so good at this and nobody else is? And you would interview these guys? Absolutely, yeah. Would they be open about it? Yeah. And they tell you? Oh, absolutely. So, like, what would they say? Oh, they'd say, here's what I do. I interviewed the guy that actually got the other guard fired. Tell me about that. Said, how did you get him to bring you this marijuana? I mean, how did that happen? And at first he wouldn't talk about it, but you're there in the same environment with him, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. So, again, a little while they start to brag, they start to talk, and he said, here's how I did it. You know, I gave him this picture that I drew. And then he started telling me about his girlfriend. And so I had my girlfriend meet with his girlfriend. And then my girlfriend gave his girlfriend this present. So, again, it was this whole process. I went from being a prison guard and then became a hypnotherapist. And as a hypnotherapist, people come to you all day long and say, I've got this particular problem. I'm doing this. For example, I'm afraid of spiders or I'm afraid of heights. Or, again, really common with love sickness, people would come in and they'd go, you know, I just broke up with my boyfriend and I'm all depressed and I can't get over it. It's been six months. You know, the guy moved to another state and I still love him. And you would hypnotize him and help him get over that? No, actually what I learned as a hypnotherapist is why were they still feeling this emotion? Why were they still in love with this person? And what I discovered there, and again, is that people have a very specific unconscious strategy or a set of steps that they go through at an unconscious level to fall in love. And not only did I see that with these people that were all depressed because they broke up, but I saw it with couples that would come in and need like couples therapy. What we find is when they were dating, accidentally, they'd fire off the other person's love strategy. So, boom, they'd fall in love. And then what happens is we go back to our normal strategy, the way we do it. good example in sales is every single time a salesperson goes to sell somebody else, for example, if you were going to try and sell me, you'd be using your unconscious strategy the whole time because that's just what you know unconsciously. But it's going to be totally different than my strategy. So again, when couples are in relationships, they start doing their strategy to somebody else and they don't understand why it's not working. Geez, I buy them all these flowers or I keep telling them I love them and the other couple goes, well, that doesn't matter to me. So what I really discovered as a therapist is here were these unconscious steps that people were using to know things unconsciously, to make decisions, to fall in love, to buy a car, to decide if they were going to buy this business or if they were going to accept this job. And then as a therapist, what I would do is just go in and help them work with the strategy. And we'd either change it or we'd teach them to use it so they could use it consciously. And then what happened is I became a stockbroker and, you know, I'd sit there all day long and people would come in and ask me about investments. And what I really quickly figured out is, wait a minute, these people aren't any different than my clients as a therapist. And so what I really quickly started doing was finding out what people's unconscious strategy was to make the investment decision. You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Did you become good at it? Oh, phenomenally good. You know, I always make the statement a lot of times in class that I'd go months and 
there literally wasn't anybody that didn't buy them. I remember one time when somebody didn't buy and I actually marked it in my calendar and said, geez, this person didn't buy because it was just unusual. And it turned out two months later that I got something from my compliance department and said, geez, you got compliance shopped and here's what they said. And I was able to go right back to my notes and say, wait a minute, what they said isn't exactly true. Here's what happened. And my compliance department was blown away because I knew exactly who the client was, what day it was, and I had the whole conversation down. So what happened? A client complained? No. Compliance sends what they call shoppers to you. And these shoppers don't have the ability to buy. They just come in and go through the buying process. And so they can't make the buying decision. There's no way they can turn around and say, okay, here's $10,000. Buy this mutual fund for me. So they literally don't have the possibility. So for me, I elicited this person's strategy, used it, and then they didn't buy. And I was like, well, this is really strange. This is weird. What's going on here? Because it was very rare someone didn't buy from you. It literally, like, never happened. Whoa. And then you figured it out. Well, like I said, then I put it in my notebook. You know, I wrote it down because it was so strange. I said, this person didn't buy, and I can't figure out why. And then, like I said, two months later, it showed up. They couldn't buy. They were just a spy. They were just a shopper trying to figure out if I was following the compliance rules. So how were you compared to the other stockbrokers in your firm? I mean, were you doing better numbers than them? At one point, yeah, I was doing phenomenal numbers. Uh, you know, again, there's a whole lot of things that go into selling. Part of it is how often do I pick up the phone and make cold calls. Right. You were probably more efficient. That was the thing, like I say. It was very rare that somebody didn't buy if I could get them in front of me. Okay, you use the term selling code, and what does that mean? And what I hear you saying is... I'd love to learn, and my HMA consultants would love to be able to meet with someone and learn people's unconscious buying strategy. Is there a system for eliciting that with everyone? Yeah, and what it comes down to is you're going to ask specific questions in a specific way, and you're going to get the person to tell you what their strategy is. And what I've discovered over the years from this is there's a whole process to it. And the kind of first step is, yeah, we need to establish rapport with the person. But then the next part of the process is we've got to literally pre-frame the conversation. So what I have to do if I'm going to elicit somebody's strategy is I have to take them from where they're at right now and put them back into the moment in time or the specific state of buying. When we use examples, let's use examples for my HMA consultants in like they're meeting with a client. So let's use that. If we have an example come up, let's keep it within that frame, okay? Okay. So number one, I need to go in and I need to establish rapport. And there's a bunch of things that we can do specifically unconsciously to establish rapport. For example, there's this thing called an unconscious greeting which is every time you meet somebody, you actually move your body in a very specific way that's unconscious. You might nod your head, you might move an eyebrow, but everybody does a very specific unconscious body movement when they greet somebody. So all we have to do is match that right in that first second. And if we do, the person automatically goes, whoa, I like this person. I see. So give me an example. Let's say I walk into your office and you're interested in my consulting services and you get up from your desk and you run your fingers through your hair before you shake my hand. Chances are I'm going to do something else, which is I'm going to maybe nod my head. I'm going to say I and I'm going to nod my head. And so what you want to do is nod your head that exact same way. And unconsciously they're going to feel that. Instantly. Another thing you can do unconsciously to establish rapport is you can actually unconsciously watch someone's breathing pattern, the rate that they're breathing. And if you match that and you start breathing in the exact same pattern, you inhale every time they inhale, exhale every time they exhale, their unconscious mind is going to go, whoa, 
this person's just like me. You can do that with tonality, tone of voice. That's one that very few people do, but it's really, really effective. What if someone's like a loud, powerful talker? Match it. Because you want to be as much like them as possible. Exactly. So they feel comfortable. They feel like they're with their own self. Exactly. And then there's less resistance. Exactly. All right, that's interesting. What are some other things we can do? The next thing we want to do, once we've kind of established this initial rapport, is we want to get the person into the frame of mind, or we kind of want to frame the entire conversation. And framing the entire conversation is really, really important. So, for example, if I were just randomly making cold calls to businesses as a marketing consultant, I wouldn't make these random calls and say, look, I'm a marketing consultant and I'm looking for people, blah, 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 blah. Instead, I'd frame that initial conversation and say, hey, you know, I'm so-and-so with such-and-such company and I'm just doing a quick survey. Do you have a minute to take the survey? Because the second you frame it as a survey, all of a sudden now the defense level goes down. They automatically think, okay, now the guy's not trying to sell me anything. You're going to say, do you own the business? You know, how long have you owned it? Do you do any marketing? Are you happy with your marketing? Those types of things. And all of a sudden, now you're starting to get into, well, they're not happy with their marketing or they feel like they could use more marketing. Well, now you can easily segue into what you want to. Let's look at the opportunity analysis. And I know we'll get into this. Tell me if this is just too early. But let's look at the opening line. So let's say my HMA consultants, they walk in. They're meeting their potential client face-to-face. They look for something. They try and match and mirror, whether it's the breathing or the initial movement or their tonality. And then you sit down, and we have here this script for the opening line. You know, Ken, I don't know how much I told you over the phone about who we are and why we're getting together today, so let me tell you quickly a little bit about what we do, what I do, and what my company does is work with business owners, people like yourself, helping them to maximize their marketing success. Most of our clients are small to medium-sized companies with sales under $5 million per year. We work with a unique marketing approach. We look at all your marketing assets and find ways to leverage and optimize your success from the asset that you already have in place because we try and leverage existing marketing assets. You can often realize dramatic and profit. You can stop, so they'll tell you right off the bat. Yeah, tell me. Horrible. Tell me why. Several different reasons. Number one, starting off telling them all about you. They don't give a crap about you. They never will. When I'm deciding and making a decision, it's never going to be about you. It's always going to be about me. So that initial even thing, let me tell you about me, don't even do it. There's absolutely no reason for it. A better type of approach. I've established the rapport with them. A question I could say is, look. Have we established rapport? Yes. Shaking the hand, mirrored and matched. Yep. Or if I need to establish more rapport, what I'm going to do is ask them a little bit about themselves. How did you start this business? How did you get involved in it? People love to talk about themselves. So if I need to establish a little bit more, that's what I would ask. I'd say, look, do you mind if I ask you, how did you even get involved in this business? Okay, just right off from the beginning. Yep. Okay, because we have lots of questions about them and their business afterwards. That would be my initial question. Just before I even ask anything else, I'm just curious. How did you even get started? Can you take me around and show me the place? Right. The second you walk in the door, you can just go, you know, before I ask you anything else or before I even tell you about me, I'm just really curious. I mean, this is a fascinating business. How did you even get started in this? And then just shut up. Yes. What does that do for me? Number one, it gets you talking about you. And, again, now it develops the rapport. This guy cares about me. Unconsciously, I'm going to think, okay, this guy's interested in me, which is the exact opposite of when I walk in the door and say, let me tell you a little bit about me. You know, I work for this company, here's what we do. Okay, that's good. So let's get rid of this whole opening paragraph. 
if they ask how we get paid, we work strictly on a project. That, by that's going to come at the very end. Just save that. Yep. They don't need to know that up front. They're not going to care up front. That's true. Now that I've got a little bit of rapport, I'm going to ask an easy, simple question. And it's kind of like an inviting question. The question would be, you know, I'd probably just take my pen, because I'm probably holding a pen or something, and I'd probably say, look, if I could wave this magic wand, you know, and I'd kind of laugh, and I'd go, well, it's not really a magic wand, it's a pen, but hey, if I had a magic wand, and I'd start just like that, what would you like? What challenges are you facing? And just let them talk again. You could actually phrase that question a little bit more specifically, again, based on what they're doing. Like, okay, let's say I had this magic wand and I was Aladdin and I could completely change how you're marketing your company and get you more customers and get you more business. What would you like if I had a magic wand? So what am I listening for? That's just going to get them to start talking. You're just going to listen. And what we're listening for is, again, they're going to start saying things. And all I'm listening for is just different kinds of words. And as people talk, they use words. We always use nominalizations. We use words. Words like, geez, I want to grow my business. And when I hear that, or when you hear it, we automatically do this thing of, okay, I know what that means. You want to grow your business. But the fact of the matter is, you have absolutely no idea as the salesman, when a guy says, I want to grow my business, you have absolutely no idea what that means. None. And I guarantee you, it doesn't mean what you instantly think it does. You have to now ask, I take that phrase, grow my business. And I'm going to say, okay, what does that mean? What does growing your business mean? And now the guy's going to actually start to tell me what he's talking about. Maybe he means I want to keep it the same level it's at, but I only want to work four days a week. Or maybe he means I want to double my income. Or maybe he means I want to keep my gross sales the way they are, but I want to increase my profits. See how it could mean several different things? Yeah, and that brings up an important point that they can make consultants because a lot of them are starting off from the bat saying, we'll grow your business 25 to 100% in the next 60 to 90 days without spending money on advertising, making a promise where you may not even have to deliver that until you find out what the potential client would be happy with. So let them tell you how much growth they want. Yeah, exactly what's important to them. What we're looking for as we elicit this unconscious strategy is we're looking for what's important to them and the specific order they're going to use as the criteria. All right, how important is this order? It's everything. It's exactly like, let's think of your client as a safe. And if he's a safe, then in order to get the sale, I've got to dial the combination and open the safe. And if I've got a safe there, not only do I have to know the numbers, like 13, 43, 6, but I have to know the order of those numbers. I have to know left 13, right 46, left 6. Now, if I know those numbers, but I put them in the wrong order, let's say I go left 43, right 6, left 14, is the safe going to open? No. Exactly, but I've got the right numbers. So how many different numbers are there to open up the safe? An infinite number. Could be infinite? Absolutely. Some people have a lot more than others. Well, no, what we're going to find as far as infinite varieties, but as far as the number itself, it's usually going to be around four. Some people it might be as many as five. Some people it might be as few as three. On average, it's going to be around four, quote, unquote, things. And if I've got those four things in the right order, and again, the order is everything. See, if I give them the four things, but it's in the wrong order, that's when people come up with objections. And they go, well, yeah, but. This yeah, but, or the whole thing of objections tells you you don't have the order right and you don't have the things in the right order. Because once you have the right things in the right order, 
It's impossible. Nobody ever has objections at that point. It's literally unconsciously impossible for us to have an objection. And the fun thing is when I'm teaching this to people in a seminar is I'll take the sales manager or one of the people and I'll say, look, I'm going to sell you this consulting and I want you not to buy it. When I get done, do not buy this from me. Give me some kind of an objection. And then what I do is I elicit the strategy and I feed it back to them in the exact order and I say, okay, do you want to buy this right now? And they always go, okay. And the entire class like freezes at that moment and starts cracking up because I say, wait a minute, I told you not to buy from me. And the person goes, oh, yeah, okay, wait a minute, do it again. That's funny. I've never had somebody not automatically go, okay, I'll buy. Well, hopefully we're going to talk about that order. What are code words and what are hot button words? Is this part of discovering the order? Yeah. See, what we're going to do is like somebody's going to say to us, okay, I want to grow my business. As we're listening to that, the code word is going to be grow. Now, what's going to happen is I'm going to ask the person, okay, what's important about growing your business? And he's going to say, well, you know, if I grow my business, I'm going to have more money. And then I'd say, okay, well, what's important about having more money? And the person's going to go, well, if I have more money, then I'm going to have more ability to buy things for my children. Or I'm going to be able to send my kids to private school. And as we start asking them, okay, what's important about that? And ultimately, what's important about that? For more exclusive interviews on business, marketing, advertising, and copywriting, go to Michael Senoff's Hard to find seminars.com. When you keep going, what's important about that? What's important about that? You don't get any kind of reaction or resistance, you know, that it starts sounding like a therapy session? No. Uh-uh. People literally love to tell you. And a lot of times, too, you're right. Initially, it seems like it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm telling you, from being on the other side of it, when somebody's asking you that, it's really not. And we can use bridging comments and statements. And literally, I can say to the person, look, you know, this is going to seem unusual, this is going to seem kind of odd, and I'm going to keep kind of asking you this. But the reason I'm asking you is because I really want to find out, ultimately, what it's really all about for you. And as we make those kind of statements and set it up, see, that's where this pre-framing and setting it up gets really, really important. The person totally relaxes, and they get really, really comfortable about telling me exactly what's important. All right, so what are we listening for? We're listening for what's important, right? Yes, and they're going to give me these specific words, like the freedom to enjoy things with my family. That word, freedom, what happens is when you get used to doing this and you get a little bit of practice with it, you're going to actually hear, as they tell you this, all of a sudden they're going to emotionally mark out certain words. You're going to literally hear it in their voice. Oh, you mean identify words. Yeah. They're going to be a little bit more emotional in their tone of voice when they say a certain word. And literally, after you practice this a little bit, and after you ask people this, you're going to literally be able to hear it right off the bat. If you do a lot of these, will you start hearing some similar patterns in people? Yeah, people have similar patterns. And what I find a lot of times is, again, some of the code words and some of these hot button words, and the difference between a code word and a hot button word is really the emotion involved. A hot button word is really, really, really emotionally charged. So when I use it, oftentimes just repeating it back to the person, you'll literally see the person emotionally flush, you know, like their skin, their face will flush. Yeah, like maybe they never have time with their kids and they say, well, I want more time with my family. Yeah, and so now when I use that, when I repeat it back to them, I say, what's it going to feel like when you are able to spend more time with your family? Do you repeat it back like that? Absolutely. That's now how I actually go to close. Once I've elicited these code words, in the specific right order, the first step now is I'm going to feed it back to them. And I'm going to say, okay, so let me see if I've got this correct. 
you basically are telling me that what you want is this, this, and this. Now, as I'm feeding that back to the person, they always, every single person I've ever seen, does something unconsciously. As you're feeding it back. Yes. Give me an example. I mean, an example from your experience that you were one time doing this with somebody. Do you have a case study you can remember? It? Let's say I'm doing this with a car, and the person literally says to me, okay, here's my code, and I'm feeding the code back in. Okay, so if what I understand is correct, what you want in a car is you want something that's got really good reliability, and you want something that's going to get really good gas mileage, and you want something for a really good price. And let's say that's the exact order that they told me was important. Now, if I feed it back to them just like that, and I say, okay, you want something that's really reliable, you want something to get really good mileage, and you want something for a really good price. Is that right? What they're going to do is automatically, unconsciously, as I start the process of feeding it back to them, they're going to start nodding their head. Everybody does that. They can't help it. And again, a lot of times when I teach this live, we'll get volunteers, and I'll say to the person, look, don't nod your head. Is it because you're feeding it back to them in the exact order that they fed it to you? It's because I'm feeding it back to them in their exact unconscious order, the way their unconscious mind is storing it. I see. So when they're nodding, they're agreeing with you. Yes, they're confirming. Yep, 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 that's it. Now, you need it in the exact order. What if you give it back to them in the wrong order? Well, see, that's what we teach. I teach people all the time. Do it, but feed it back to them in the wrong order. In the wrong order? Yep. Why? Because it does two things. Number one, for the person that I'm feeding it back to in the wrong order, I'm saying, okay, here's this car, and what you told me is you want it for the right price, and you want to get really good gas mileage, and you want it reliable. Is that correct? And the person will sit there and go, well, yeah, I think. And see, what happens is now if I'm doing that to you, you're going to have a really good experience of, well, yeah, that's exactly what I said, but it doesn't feel right. And then I'll say, now watch, and then I'll turn it around, and I'll feed it back in the right order, and the person will instantly start nodding their head, and I'll get to the end of it, and I'll go, is that right? And I'll go, oh, yeah. So you'll feed it back to them twice? Yes. Then you'll do this for real? Yes. So you get them to double confirm. The first one didn't feel right, then you'd say the same thing, but in the right order. They don't really realize the order they gave it to you, but that one feels right. They nod their head and double confirm. Exactly. For more information, go to thebuyingcode.com. That works better than just feeding it back one time in the right order. Yep, and not only that, but as the salesman, now it tells me exactly, yep, I've got it perfectly. Because if I'm feeding it back to them and I'm not getting this head nodding, then there's a piece missing. And I've got to go back and figure out what am I missing. There's something I'm missing. What if you find you feed it back to them twice and something's missing, then what do you do? And I go back and say, okay, seems like this isn't totally comfortable for you yet. And I literally say, hey, there's something obviously kind of missing here. Let me ask you a couple more questions. And then what I'll do is I'll go back to the strategy. And I'll start at the very beginning. I'll say, okay, the first thing you told me is that it needs to be really reliable. And as we initially get them into the buying strategy, what we have to do is go, okay, go back to a time when you actually did this. So if I were talking to a business owner, I'd have them go back to a time when they actually bought something for their business. You know, again, since this is a buying strategy, it could be something as simple as a copier or the last time they hired somebody. But I'm going to tell them, go back to that moment in time when you did this. And as you were doing this, is that the very first thing you thought is, okay, it's got to be reliable.
Are you asking them this? Yeah. So when you feel some resistance and it doesn't feel comfortable, let's say my consultants are selling consulting projects and you're saying, it looks like something's missing, it's not comfortable, let me go back and ask you a couple of questions. Can you think of a time before where you invested in consulting services and is that what you're saying? I say, okay, Michael, there's probably some time in your life when you bought something for your business that would help your business out. Have you ever bought anything that would really help your business out? Sure, a printer. Okay, cool. Now, when you went to buy that printer, there was probably hundreds of printers out there to choose from. Yes. Let me ask you, when you went to buy the printer, what's the first thing you did in order to decide? How did you decide to buy this printer? I bought this one because I had bought a previous printer. It was a brother printer, which was very reliable compared to my other printer. So I just bought another brother. I looked for one that wasn't that expensive and was on sale and was good value. And that's why I bought this printer. Okay. So when you went to buy this printer, is there something in the very, very beginning that kind of told you you needed a printer? Oh, yeah. I needed a printer for this new office because I needed to print stuff. Now you've started to give me part of the code here. First thing is probably that you needed one. Next thing has to do with the fact that it was the right brand. You said it was Brother. Now, again, when I say brand, I just did something. I contaminated. Because all you told me was that it was a Brother printer and that that's what you were looking for. So by you repeating back, it was the right brand, what if I just contaminated and I did some mind reading there and I went, this is what he means by that. And that's a big mistake salespeople make. Oh, so you made a mistake doing that. Absolutely. And I did it intentionally to show you. So what should you have done? I would have said, okay, so you needed a printer and it was important for you to get a brother printer. And you were looking at the price and this was on sale and it was a really good value. Yes. Okay. I'm guessing we don't have the order exactly right. And the reason I'm guessing is because you paused just a second there. So I can literally, because I've done this a whole bunch of times, generally if I've got the order exactly right, the people don't even pause. You kind of pause. That may be right. So what I know is I don't have the order right or there's probably something missing. All right, very good, yeah. So, again, now I keep asking questions. And I go, okay, so those things were all important. You know? Because you want to get that order right, right? Exactly. Now, I can't even remember it, but you're saying unconsciously I will. See, that's exactly true. No one knows their buying strategy consciously. As the salesperson, I have to be good enough to elicit it from So you have to practice and listen for the order. Yes. The combination. Yep. And this is really, really important, right? It's everything. It's the combination to the face. First off, you said it was a brother printer. It was expensive. It was on sale. And it was a value. Yeah. Okay. First thing is you kind of needed a printer. I needed a printer for this office. Okay. And how did you decide which kind of a printer you needed? I had a previous brother at my other office, which was very reliable compared to previous ones. I just went with that one for this one. And since once I knew I wanted this brand or this brother, then I just shopped price and just got a low-end one, which was going to do the job. I didn't need big-time printing, just something laser jet printer. And I bought it online. I didn't go shopping the stores, ordered it, and it came to me. Boom. I'm happy. Okay. So you had this previous brother printer. It was really reliable. You kind of got online then to look for other brother printers. Yes. Okay. And then what? You just wanted one that did certain things? Yes. Okay. Which was more important, that it do those certain things or that it be a certain price? Did it do certain things, that it was laser jet and that the speed per pages per minute was important and that it was decent and that it held at least 100 sheets of paper. Okay. And then the price. And then the price, yeah. 
once you found this reliable brother printer and you saw that, okay, it does exactly the job I want to do. It's the right speed, it's 100 sheets, and it's the right price, did you then just automatically buy it? Yes, I did. Okay, that sounded pretty congruent. So, let me ask you this. If you needed another printer, maybe you've got another room, you need another printer. If you needed this other printer, and I had this brand-new brother printer here, really super reliable. I mean, they just come out with it. It's even more reliable than past editions. And it's laser jet. It's exactly the speed you need. It's going to do a really decent job. It holds exactly the right amount of paper you need. And it's the exact price you want to buy it for. Would you buy it? Yes, I would. See how that felt? Yeah. Now, watch. I'm going to feed the same thing back to you, but I'm going to feed it back to you in a different order. All right, let's see. Now, let's say I've got this printer here, and it's the right price, and it's going to do the job for you. It's laser jet, it's the right speed, and it's decent, and it's going to fit the amount of paper it needs, and it's this really reliable brother printer. Would you buy it? Yeah, I didn't feel you're right, unless you kind of set me up, you know, since I knew what you were going to do. But I don't think it felt as right as the first time because of the order. Well, yes, the order was different. Just watch. Reliable, do the job, right price. Yeah, because reliability was my most important thing. Right price, do the job, reliable. Wrong order. Yeah. I see, yeah. Did you even realize that, though, 15 minutes ago? No. See, if I'm going to sell you something, and I say, okay, look, it's a great price, it's going to do the job, and it's reliable. They're all important, but I say reliable first because that's number one on the list. Yes. It has to be in the right order. So it's just a feeling. Even though you feed it back in the wrong order, but they're all important. It has to be in the right order. Why? The brain doesn't do What is it? Unconscious mind's not going to process it correctly. Because it's not matching. Yes. It's not matching your unconscious strategy. Now, are we saying when someone feeds back reasons why, you know, buying criteria, are they putting the order from most important to least important unconsciously? Exactly. So it's the order in which we're categorizing things of importance, right? Yeah, and that's easy to find out. One, generally, as you tell it to you're going to put it in the right order. But there's sometimes when you don't. So again, as a salesman, I'm going to easily test that. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to go, if it's between price and it's between reliability, which one's more important to you? Reliability. See, if I ask, you'll tell me which one's more important. Those questions we can even do before. Absolutely. That's to get the order. Yeah. Now you're going to get this order from them in how they're going to buy a consultant and what's important to them about having a consultant. You're going to get the exact order. And now what I'm going to do is now I'm going to go through the rest of this opportunity analysis that you've got, which is now I'm going to ask them all these marketing types of questions. Let's kind of summarize the opportunity analysis. We come in. Oh, by the way, tell me, how did you get started in this business? Let them start talking about themselves. Mirror and match, you know, something they do unconscious from right when you meet them to their breathing, tonality. Right then, what are we doing next? Then I'm going to kind of set it up. I'm going to say, look, if I had this magic wand and I could accomplish for you with your business whatever you wanted to accomplish, what would you want? Get them to talk more and listen for the combination. Yes. Now they're going to start to tell you things. I'd like my business to grow. I'd like it to run smoother. I'd like it to be less stressful. Then you probe by asking, well, what does that mean? Yes. I'm going to say, okay, when you say you want your business to be less stressful, I'm not exactly sure about that. So let me just ask you, what does that really mean to you? What does less stressful mean? And then they're going to tell me, well, less stressful means I want to be able to have somebody else do the marketing for me. Ooh, that's not what I thought initially when I thought about less stressful. See, he just gave me a big, giant clue there now. 
Or maybe when he says less stressful, maybe he's going to say, you know, every time I run an ad, it just doesn't work. And that's so aggravating. So what I mean by less stressful is I want to be able to run an ad and have my phone ring. See, two completely different meanings there to less stressful. And as a consultant, I've got to find out what does he actually mean by that. So once we identify what they really want and we're either taking notes and putting these things in an order. Yes, you're going to have to take notes, and all you do is going to write words down as the person says them. Like I wrote down, brother, reliable, do job, price. Then what do we do? Then I'm going to feed it back to them. I'm going to say, okay, you've said having a reliable printer is important, and you've said price is important. Which one's more important? Which is more important, the price or the reliability? And the person's going to tell me. And I'm going to ask that a couple times until I get the exact order. So now I know, okay, reliability is more important than price. Then I'm going to say, okay, which is more important, that it do the job or that it's the right price? And I guess, oh, they do the right job. Again, and I'm going to say, okay, which is more important, reliability or doing the right job? I'm going to, oh, back to reliability. So now I've got the exact order. Okay, or another way to get the order is take me back to another time you spent money on consulting. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, how did you actually decide to hire that consultant? And you want to look for that order, too. Yes, they're going to tell you something. They're going to say, you know, I felt he could really do the job for me, or I felt he was an expert, or it was the right price, or, you know, I really liked the guy. Okay, so we take these notes down, these words, and we have them in front of us. Now, how would you suggest I segue into the opportunity analysis? How would I frame this next series of questions trying to identify whether they have assets or not? Okay. Now, you've told me here with this printer, you know, that it needs to be really reliable. It needs to do the job. It needs to be the right speed and stuff. So now, let me just take a look at your office. And let me see, you know, what kind of a job we really needed to do here. So, again, if the person's telling me what I'm really looking for is to grow my business, I want my sales to go up by 25%, then what I'd use is I'd use that and feed it back to them. And I'd say, okay, you've told me that it's really important and what you want is to grow your business by 25%. Let me kind of ask you a few questions now to find out what you're doing right now so that I can see how we might be able to increase it by 25%. There we go, and then we take them through the opportunity analysis. Exactly. Okay, so you see how this thing is broken up into steps and how he's got these kind of closing questions. Dump the closing questions. Don't even use them. No. So as we go through the USP and we uncover they're not using a USP in their business, I don't say, do you see how that can help your business and get them to say yes? No. Uh-uh. How would I end that section before I go on to leveraging current marketing front? I don't even need to end that. I just go right on to the next one. Now, when I get done going through this whole analysis of these different areas. Tell me the reason why we dumped the closing questions. Pressure? I don't need it. You don't need it. You've got the code. Yeah. Why do I need a closing question? That's true. You've got the code. Yeah. Do you understand how USP can help your business by them saying, yes, what are we actually trying to do as a typical salesperson? What you're trying to do as a typical salesperson is you're falling back into that whole trap of a typical salesperson. Here's what's happening. You're sitting there on your side of the equation. They're sitting there on their side of the equation, and you're saying to yourself, what the hell is this person thinking? Are we still on the same side of the fence? And so you throw that question out there trying to find out, you know, are we still on the same side of the fence here? That's true. I've got a code. I'm on his side of the fence. I don't need to lob those kind of questions out there to find out. Okay. So recommendation, keep going through all this. Yeah. I'm going to go through all of that. Now, once I've got it, you know, as the opportunity analysis, I'm looking for what I can actually do. In my own mind, I'm formulating, here's what I can easily do, and here's how. 
as the marketing consultant. That's what I'm doing. I'm going, wow, guy doesn't have a USB. Wow, guy's not doing any direct marketing. He's doing just institutional marketing. Wow, the guy's not even tracking his marketing. He doesn't even have any idea how many people are calling him. Wow, guy doesn't even have a website. And now I've identified all these things as the marketing consultant I know all about, and he doesn't have a clue. And I'm taking notes as I'm questioning him. Right. All the things he doesn't have. Right. Now, to close him, when I get to the very end of that, see, all that information like USP and direct response and tracking and all that stuff, that's good information for me. Again, he doesn't give a crap. Unconsciously, it makes no difference. He just wants the code words. Yes. And so what happens is now I'll get done and I'll say, okay, wow, here's all this stuff I've kind of learned about your business. And you know what? I have this really, really reliable way that's going to do the job and it's exactly the right price. Would you buy it? See, what I'm doing there is now I'm feeding back the strategy. Are you using the printer example with me? Yeah. So, yeah, so it didn't feel right because you went out of order. Right. Not only did it not feel right, because what I'm talking about is doing consulting, and consulting is a little bit different than buying a printer. So, again, there's going to be a little bit of difference there. That's why I hesitated. I'd need your exact strategy for how you're hiring a consultant. Right. So let's say you're selling me the printer, and you say, well, we've gone through this whole opportunity analysis about this printer. And the feedback to you, I'm going to say, look, here's this particular brother printer. It's really, really reliable because, and I'm going to tell you why it's reliable. And then I'm going to tell you, here's why it does the job. Because it's this speed, and it feeds 120 sheets. And here's the price. And I'm going to tell you, here's why I can offer you that price. So what I do is take your strategy, but now I fill it in. You see what I mean by filling it in? With the stuff that you know as a consultant. Yes. Right. Once I've fed the strategy back, I'm going to say, is that something you want? They have to say yes. If I feed you back your strategy, and I say, is that something you want? You can't say, no, that's not what I want. Because it's your strategy. How can you literally at that point tell me, no, I don't want my own strategy? That's true. And it's simpler. Do you think this cuts down the sales cycle? It not only cuts it down, but it makes it elegant. What you're going to find is that as you're asking people for what's important to them, they start to tell you what's important to them, and now they start to feel this real connection to you. It establishes phenomenal rapport. And they start to go, wow, you know exactly what I want. And not only do you know exactly what I want, but you can give it to me. Most of the time, you don't even have to close. You'll just feed the strategy back to them, and they're going to like, well, how much is this going to cost? What do I need to do now? I can't wait to try this. What are these motivational keys, okay? Now, motivational keys are actually the unconscious things that cause me to take action. Again, the reason we call them motivational keys is because they're motivating. And what we want to do is kind of identify these as we're going through and asking the person these questions. So motivation keys is things like towards or away from. And if somebody's telling me their strategy, they're going to start to identify this. They're going to say, look, I really want to spend time with my family. Now, if they say want to spend time with my family, I know it's a towards. If they say, you know, what's really important to me is I hate the fact that I have to work so much and I hate the fact that I miss my kids' plays and I'm never there when my son has his soccer game. That's an away from. So I know. Okay, now in order to push that button, what I need to do is use it. Now, if you told me, hey, what's really motivating me is I keep missing my son's soccer games and I miss my daughter's play, now what happens as a consultant? I say, look, you can continue to do what you're doing, and if you don't hire me, you're going to keep missing your daughter's play. You're going to miss your son's soccer game next year. What if your son gets onto the elite team? How is it going to feel if you don't do this and you miss his games next year? Now, how motivating is that to me? I just told you that's my strategy. 
it's hugely motivating. I mean, it sounds pretty hardcore selling. You're literally not using it as blatantly as I just did. What I'm really doing is I'm just going to feed it back in the right way. You've got to do it in the right way. Yeah. I said it back to you that way because I wanted to make it really, really obvious. But again, what I'm saying is what you told me is important to you is you want to spend time with your daughter. So by taking and using this USP, you're going to have a lot more free time. What kind of people have you taught this whole strategy to? Well, geez, I've taught it to real estate agents. We teach it to insurance agents and financial advisors. I've taught it to car salespeople. Those are the three main categories right now that we've been teaching it to. Is it hard to learn, or how much practice is it going to take? It takes a bit of practice. And what I usually tell people is start off just in your normal, everyday life and start getting good at just eliciting somebody's buying strategy. You know, walk up to somebody in their office and go, wow, really nice watch you've got on there. You know, I like that watch. How did you decide to buy that watch? And they'll give you their buying strategy for the watch and then feed it back to them. Then you ask questions. So if you were going to buy another watch and then feed them back the strategy and go, that right? And if you get that bobblehead, got it. Or I can walk out to the parking lot and I can see somebody's car and I go, ooh, nice car. How would you decide to buy that? So what I do is I want to pre-frame it. And the way I'm pre-framing it is just by saying, ooh, that's a nice car. I'm interested in it. Because otherwise, if I just randomly walk up to somebody and go, ooh, How'd you buy your watch? I don't have them in the right mindset. So if I'm getting objections anywhere, especially at the end, I don't have the right strategy in the right order. That's all it means. I've got to go back and redo it. And have you had to sometimes go back a couple times? Always, yeah. But once you get good at it, you really don't have to go back because, again, you're going to test it as you're going. And as you're testing it, you're going to get that bobblehead. I think the bubble that I know I've got it in the right order. Okay, this is good for a face-to-face. How about when my consultants are on the phone trying to set an appointment? How could we use it? Again, when I'm on the phone like that, the first thing is the framing. How do I frame the conversation? What's the meaning of the conversation? Is it a survey or am I trying to sell them? Because if I come off that initially I'm trying to sell, instantly the person's defenses go up. Now that makes it that much tougher. So if I were doing it on the phone, I would go back to like I did as a stockbroker. If I were doing cold calls, I'd call people and I'd say, look, you know, I'm just doing a survey. I'm with Morgan Stanley. Do you mind if I ask you three quick questions? And people said, no, okay, fine. You know, they're not rejecting me. They're just basically saying they don't have time for a survey. So, number one, it felt better to me. But then, number two, now they're taking a survey. Now it's really easy to ask them questions. Okay. Do you believe Social Security is going to be around when you retire? Nope. Do you have an IRA or a 401k plan? Nope. Ah, what are you going to do? And most of the time, people would laugh and go, geez, I don't know. And now I could really segue into, well, you ever thought about sitting down with somebody? And now it doesn't come across as a sales call. Now it's like, well, I've already identified the fact that, geez, I don't think Social Security is going to be around. I need an IRA. Geez, I thought about sitting down with somebody. Yeah, I'd like to do that. I would call up and I would just tell, hey, you know, I'm doing a survey of local businesses about their marketing practices. Do you mind if I ask you three quick questions? And I'd have to think about it. You could come up with three really good questions that would, like I say, segue people into that whole piece. This would be something I'd be interested in sitting down and talking about. So what do you think? If my consultants reworked this whole opportunity analysis, eliminated that first part and used this system, let's say they're closing now every four appointments, they'll get one client. What do you think this thing, if they really practice and master it, can do? As long as they're qualifying right from the beginning. Honestly, they'd probably easily close 90%. If they're doing it right, they should close every single person. But realistically, even if they're doing it halfway right, you know, we should be getting up there in that 75 to 3 out of 4. I mean, it totally makes sense because if you think about it, most of the consultants, especially the new ones, the reason they're not closing in many cases is they're talking to the wrong person. 
Yeah. So number one, we qualified it. We've got the right person. See, think about it from this point of view. Number one, we've got the right person. Number two, the person's told me exactly how they make the decision. I can't imagine why the person is like that. Tell me, if my consultants want to invest in your course, what is the course going to teach them? What does it contain? What's in it? What are they going to get? We're going to have the audio, and I'm going to literally walk them through. I've got to really break it down for you. A lot of it is very, very specific. If I change one word as I'm asking the questions, I'm going to get a completely different unconscious response. So I have to ask the question very, very specifically. So I talk to you about why you've got to ask it this way and not this way. Why if I change one word here, I'm going to get a completely different response from the person. And then, literally, we've got a worksheet there that shows you how to map this out. So as the person's talking, you're going to carry around this little worksheet, and you're just going to make these little notes on it. And by the time you get done, you've got this literally map of their unconscious decision-making process. And you can bring this, like, mind map with you on any appointment? Yes, you should. If I want to sell the person, I want to know how this particular person is making that decision. So, yeah, I want to bring that little questionnaire or this little mind map with me on every single appointment so that as I'm asking the questions, I can just fill it out. Once I filled it out, now I've got the exact map or I've got the exact code to basically unlock this person's strategy. Is it a physical product? Are they on CDs or is it a digital product or what? No, I told you we could do it digitally before they could just download it. Okay, they can download it. Yeah, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to set that up for you. We'll make a special page for them where they can just order it and it'll take them right to a download and they can just download it. Ken, this is awesome. This is powerful stuff. And I encourage HMA consultants to check this out. And there will be a special link for anyone listening to this that they can go learn more about it. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh. My pleasure. I love to teach this because it makes such a huge difference. I can tell you story after story after story of agents with a real estate agent bottom of the office, you know, within a year, top three car salesman, literally not earning 2000 bucks a month. In a month, earning consistently over 10000 Wow. It's not hard to open up a safe when you know the combination. Well, see, that's the thing. And all of these people, once they learn it, they come back to me and they go, oh, my gosh. As soon as I learned about these code words, I started discovering stuff, and people told me, you know, this car salesman came back and said, wow, this woman came in, and she'd been looking all over town for this car, and she told me she wanted a really big truck. Well, again, what's big? It's a code word. And the guy goes, okay, what do you mean by big? What's important about big? And she said, well, you know, I want to be high up so that I can look down and I can see really well. Everybody else in town had tried to sell her, like, a one-ton pickup because they thought that's what she meant when she says, no, I want a big truck. Yeah, they were guessing. Yeah, they were contaminating. He asked her, what's important about big? And she said, you know, I want to sit up high. So he found her a car where she was sitting up high, and she went, oh, you're the first person that ever understood exactly what I want, and bought the car from him. Same thing with real estate salespeople. You know, I had a real estate agent come back to me and go, oh, my gosh. I was just taking this lady around, and before I learned this, she told me she wanted a house with a view. And I took her around to ten different houses, and she didn't like any of them. And finally I asked her, well, what do you mean by view? And she goes, well, I want to be able to look out the kitchen window and not see my husband's cars. So she takes her up to this wooded area. You look out the kitchen window. All you saw was four trees. There was no what you and I might think of as view. Woman looks out the kitchen window. The driveway's on the other side of the house. So she looks out the kitchen window, can't see a car for miles. And she goes, that's exactly what I wanted. Those are brilliant examples right there. So people say one thing, but we hallucinate. We don't know until we really ask and get the real reason, the hidden reason, the code. Let's say I come in, and I'm buying an investment, and I ask you, okay, what's important about this investment? And I go, it needs to be safe. I'm going to automatically contaminate that. I don't know what safe means. 
See, so as an investment advisor, I'm going, oh, okay, so this person wants something, you know, that's not going to fluctuate in value. Maybe they want something like a fixed annuity or maybe they want a CD or something like that. And what they mean by safe might mean I want to have so much money that when I retire, I'm not going to worry about it. So, no, I don't care that it fluctuates. What I care about is the maximum value in 20 years from now. That's what I mean by safe. For more information, go to thebuyingcode.com. That's www dot T-H-E-B-U-Y-I-N-G-C-O-D dot com. For more interviews like this, go to hardtofindseminars.com.